Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, I'd invite you to open up with me to Acts chapter 17. It was uh, several years ago that uh, a pastor named Douglas Wilson went. Uh, he was invited to Indiana University, I think in, in 2016 or 2017, uh, to go and give a, an explanation of the Christian view of, of gender and sexuality. Uh, and uh, the, the the video of his uh, lectures there at that secular campus uh, is available uh, online, and it, it was it was amazing to see him go and in that setting uh, say everything and kind of unfold a, a Christian uh, view on those topics. Now, I don't agree with him on everything, but I admire his his courage uh, to go and and speak uh, on that subject uh, to uh, to you know. In the world's eyes, educated uh, intellectuals uh, who uh, have uh, particular views. It was uh, amazing to see uh, people standing in the the big auditorium shouting him down uh, continuously, uh, heckling him, calling him names. And that's not what most of us aspire to do, right? Anybody want to go to a major college campus and, and debate the Christian faith? With professors and uh, graduate students, anybody, any takers? That's not usually what we are uh, desiring to do. What do you want to do today? I want to go get heckled. Let's uh, let's go get uh, shouted down. But I think uh, an important question to ask is, could I ever do that? And, and I think we could. I think every person here could have that kind of courage. But, but where do we get that kind of courage? Where does that come from? It comes from a, uh, really what we're going to see today. As I, as I watched that, uh, that video of Pastor Wilson you know, speaking at Indiana University, I couldn't help but thinking of this passage of Scripture that we're going to study this morning. And, and what we're going to study is the Apostle Paul in the, in the city of Athens. And what we're really going to see is that ours is not, not the first generation to be laughed and scoffed at when we proclaim the, the message of a crucified and risen Savior. Indeed, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, the Apostle Paul says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I think Paul learned that as he went around uh, preaching and proclaiming, uh, and people scoffed at him. Uh, and the, the more he proclaimed and the more people scoffed, he became more and more convinced that the, the cross is going to be a dividing line. Either people are going to receive it and be saved and be transformed, or they're going to scoff and laugh and mock and grow angry. What we're looking at uh, this morning in Acts chapter 17, Paul is on his second missionary journey. If you look at verses 13 through 15, Paul was in Berea, uh, and as uh, the word was proclaimed in Berea, uh, they, it was well received, and the Bereans uh, went to the scriptures to evaluate what Paul was teaching and proclaiming, and they received it with joy. But then there were in verse 15 or verse 13, it says, When the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God was being proclaimed by Paul in Berea, they came there as well, shaking up and disturbing the crowds. <clears throat> right? 
they, they made a, a journey from one city to another to, to heckle and mock and shut down the Apostle Paul. And then immediately, verse 14, the brothers sent Paul out to go as far as the sea. And then Silas and Timothy remained there. And those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him, as soon as possible, they left. So Paul just had to, had to get out of Thessalonica. Now, had to, had to, to flee. Uh, I'm sorry, he had to flee from Berea. And he went to Athens. And he went to Athens by himself. Uh, and then what we see beginning in verse 16 is Paul, as he waits there in Athens... Verse 16 says, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. Now, Athens had been the most influential city in the world during the 5th and 4th centuries B.C. It was the the home city of Socrates and Plato and the adopted city of other philosophers such as Aristotle, Epicurus, and Zeno. And Zeno was the the philosopher who began the the Stoic... uh, philosophy. And in Paul's day, Athens was uh, one of the most uh, prominent, one of the most prominent features in Athens were uh, the many very large pagan temples. There was a great temple to Athena known as uh, the Parthenon. There was the Erechtheion uh, dedicated to multiple deities. There was the the temple of the goddess Roma uh, and Augustus. Uh, and the goddess Roma was really just uh, the personification of the city of Rome and the Roman Empire. Yes, they worshipped themselves, basically. And in addition to those major sites, there would have been many other pagan uh, sacred uh, idols and altars. Uh, and many of those have been discovered by archaeologists uh, even in our own time. And it makes sense now what one uh, ancient Roman author said jokingly, said it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens. Uh, and so Athens was a, in a city of enlightened philosophy and superstitious idolatry. But look at what Paul does, being, being convicted and provoked within him, verse 17. So he was reasoning in the synagogue. That was his, his normal practice. He would go to the synagogue. He would proclaim the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ uh, to the, the Jews in the synagogue. And when they rejected or didn't want to hear him anymore, then he went to the, the God-fearing Gentiles, uh, the Gentile converts to Judaism. But also what we see here, what he, did, he, what he does in Athens is a little unique. Because and then uh, in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be present. And also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him, and some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? And others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was proclaiming the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. And those philosophers took a a shot at him. The idea of being an an idle uh, babbler is like he's a, a little bird hopping around, picking up little kernels of of truth, but not really having any truth of his own. Uh, He he picks things up and doesn't really know what to to do with it. So they're already heckling him, mocking him. But they invite him, verse 19, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, or to uh, the hill of Ares saying, may we know what this new teaching is and what you are speaking. For you're bringing some strange things to our ears. 
And so we want to know what these things mean. And now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something newer. So Mars Hill or the Areopagus, previously, previously it had been the meeting place in in Athens. It was the most important location. That's where uh, legislative and judicial matters used to take place. But by the Apostle Paul's time, it was really where uh, it was an open forum for debate, for philosophy, religion, uh, and education. So the, the philosophers mocking him say, okay, why don't you come on down and give an account of what you are proclaiming. Tell us more about uh, this Jesus and the, the resurrection, right? So in one sense, you're like, that's like T-ball. I can do that. But, but think about this setting. There's nobody else there with the Apostle Paul. This is the only period in his ministry where he didn't have others with him. Silas and Timothy are still back in Berea and they're on their way. But the Apostle Paul gets, and gets up and stands in front of this hostile audience and he speaks boldly. In verses 22 to 31 is going to be the Apostle Paul uh, addressing this gathering of philosophers. And it begins, verses 22 and 23, kind of his introduction. Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. And so Paul takes a little dig at them here because that word, you know, very religious is actually a compound of of three words in the Greek. It means that they are uh, fearful of deities, uh, and they are firm in that fearfulness uh, of deities. So he's saying they're reverential, but it's a, a little bit of a dig because the word for gods or, or deities also, uh, deities, uh, that word could either be deities or demons. Uh, and so the Apostle Paul is basically saying to their face, I see that you are worshiping demons, uh, and I see that you are steeped in that. And Paul explains his experience in the city. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And the Apostle Paul is going to he's going to correct the philosophers. Uh, he's going to correct uh, these uh, intellectuals uh, who, who love to bandy about ideas and, and words and philosophy. He's going to correct their understanding about who God is and who they are. Paul says, let me tell you what you need to know about the God that you acknowledge that you don't know. Now, as we study this message this morning, I think we, we have much to learn from the way that the Apostle Paul proclaims this message about uh, the crucified and, and risen Savior and how the resurrection comes into play in his argument of what he presents to uh, these philosophers who have come and said, explain your views to us. We could ask, what does the world need to know? If Paul has this opportunity. He's going to lay out three corrections to their philosophical understanding of God and their understanding of humanity. And this first correction that we're going to see is in verses 24 and, and 25. The Apostle Paul is going to lay out what the world needs to know about God. Verse 24, the Apostle Paul says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell 
in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. As Paul corrects their their understanding about God, he's really going to list off five things in quick succession here. Number one, he wants them to understand that God is the creator of the world, that God made everything. Now, the philosophers at that time kind of viewed uh, God as being a pantheistic, that God was in everything and was everything. And he says, no, no, God is the, the maker of everything, but he is not everything. He's the creator of the world. He's also the ruler of the world, that he is the the Lord over the heavens and the earth. And God does not dwell in any man-made temple. And this is actually what King Solomon himself acknowledged. When when Solomon was building the temple in Jerusalem, he says this in 1 Kings 8, 27. In his prayer, he says, But will God truly dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. And you can probably imagine the Apostle Paul standing there. And as he is saying that God does not dwell in any house built by human hands, there's plenty of man-made temples to point to as he says this. God doesn't dwell there or there or there or there. God dwells in none of those places. And God also does not depend upon the service of men. If you looked at those large temples surrounding uh, him in Athens, you'd also see lots of temple attendants, people going in and out seeking to to serve God. And Paul is uh, pointing to the fact that it is silly to think that God is dependent upon people. And in that, Paul is, is picking up the idea of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 44, verses 16 and 17, in his uh, kind of monologue against idolatry, Isaiah the prophet says half of it, speaking of a log that somebody takes and cuts down, he says half of it he burns in the fire, and over this half he he eats meat as he roasts, a roast and is satisfied. And he also warms himself and says, aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. But the rest of it, he makes into a God, his graven image, and he falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. The the foolishness of of worshiping something that you yourself made. Then lastly, Paul says and emphasizes that God needs nothing from men. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. What does man have to give to God that God doesn't have? God himself is the one who gives to all men some exact numbers, right? He says God has given to men all things, life and breath and everything else. That is what God has given to humanity. What do we have to offer back to God? So Paul is correcting them concerning their their fundamental understanding about God because it is off course. You think of this uh, as kind of a mathematical term, uh, a vector. And a vector is uh, a distance and a direction. If you want to get from point A to point B, I need to make sure I'm headed in the right direction and that I have the appropriate amount of of distance. This is uh, every time you go golfing... You are doing some vectors. 
right? Sometimes when you're, when you're golfing, uh, you look at it on TV, right? The Masters is this weekend, and they make it look so easy, right? Their, their vectors are right on course. They have the right distance and the right uh, direction. Uh, but if I go golfing, right, once every five years, whether I need to or not, uh, when I go golfing, sometimes I have a great hit. I got great distance. It's just in the wrong direction. Right? At other times, I have uh, the right direction, but it's like a dribbler. Uh, and it's kind of bouncing along uh, and not going very far. We need to make sure that we have the right vector concerning God. Without a knowledge of God, we are hitting golf balls without any comprehension of where the pin is. We're just out there hitting things around. Don't know where to aim, how hard to hit it, where to go. And so as Paul speaks with these pagan unbelievers, he begins with God as the creator. And he explains the nature and the character of God. He doesn't do it exhaustively. But that is his starting point. And God being the creator is the starting point for everything else. And our knowledge of God sets us in a direction. It gives us a vector in life. And a lack of knowledge about God impacts that vector as well. And the nature of a a vector, if there's one right direction and one right distance, every other direction is going to be incorrect, wrong, off course. Sometimes that's obvious from the beginning and sometimes it shows up later. But you need to make sure that God is your starting point, that he is your foundation. And then you need to move in the direction that he lays out for us in his word. Paul's first correction to the Athenians concerns what they need to know about God. But closely connected to that is what they need to know about man. And he corrects their understanding in verses 26 to 28. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to inhabit all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not very far from each of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. So a couple things to to note about what the Apostle Paul is is laying out concerning humanity here. Uh, And yes, I I pointed to these verses, but there's something back in verses 22 and 23 that I also want to note. That every single person is a worshiper. Just because people claim not to believe in God doesn't mean that they are not worshiping something. Now, what's that old quote from, from Bob Dylan? Everyone's got to serve somebody. There's another quote from from G.K. Chesterton. He says, when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. We worship anything. That is what we see very much in the city of Athens, that everyone is a worshiper. Everyone is is seeking where they should be directing their, their worship and affection. But oftentimes, all the time, it's incorrect. Additionally, we see that every single person, every nation or ethnicity... Paul makes this point, has descended from Adam. And he made from one man every nation of mankind. And, and Paul begins here because the Athenians had a, a sort of intellectual uh, pride and superiority. Now, they thought they were better than all of the other Greeks. 
And because of their history, and they thought the Greeks were better than everybody else. That, that, is, that was the goal of Alexander the, the Great. As he went and conquered the known land, he also spread Greek culture everywhere that he went. That was his goal. And when Rome came and conquered Greece, Rome conquered the, the people and the territory, but the culture of Greece conquered the Romans. And really what you have is the culture of uh, Greece being adopted into uh, the city of Rome and the, the entire Roman Empire. And so the Apostle Paul is, is taking a dig at him, at the, the Athenians here, and he's saying, you are no better, no greater than anyone else. I love the way one pastor puts this, F.F. F. Bruce. He says, the creator of all things in general is the creator of mankind in particular. The Athenians might pride themselves on being uh, autochthonous, uh, sprung from the soil of their native Attica, but this pride was ill-founded, and all mankind was one in origin, all created by God and all descended from one common ancestor. This removed all imagined justification for their belief that Greeks were innately superior to barbarians, as it removes all imagined justification for parallel beliefs today, neither in nature nor in grace, neither in the old creation nor in the new, is there any room for ideas of racial superiority. Paul flattens that because you need to understand that. God is your creator and he's created the entire human race from one man, so we are all equal. Verse 24, uh, or, and then, I'm sorry, God then tells mankind, he made from one man, every nation of mankind, to inhabit all the face of the earth. And the emphasis there is, is that to inhabit is the same word uh, that was used by the Apostle Paul to describe God in verse 24. So verse 24, God doesn't inhabit a temple made by human hands. In essence, uh, humans don't tell God where to dwell. But here in this verse, the emphasis is God tells humanity where to dwell and where to live. And then he moves on from there. He says, And having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. What the Apostle Paul is saying there, that every nation's boundaries are decreed by God. God, as the Lord of heaven and earth, has determined and decreed times for every nation of, hey, you're going to be this big, these are going to be your boundaries, uh, and he expands or contracts them according to his plans and his purposes, which have been decreed from eternity past. He is the one who determines the boundaries of each nation throughout human history. And this is seen repeatedly in the book of Daniel, but Daniel 2, verses 20 through 22 say this, And Daniel answered and said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and might belong to him, and he changes the times and the seasons, and he removes kings and establishes kings, and he gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. And he reveals the deep and hidden things, and he knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. So every nation's boundaries are decreed by God. Why, why did the city of Athens flourish in the 5th and 4th century? Because God allowed it to happen. Why is Athens not in the position that it's in during Paul's time? Because God allowed it to happen. Additionally, uh, the Apostle Paul then says in verse 27, why God does the things that he does. Why, why does he expand and contract the nation, the boundaries of the nations? And why does he raise and elevate uh, according to his plans and purposes that they would seek 
Him. That they would seek God. That we would seek our Creator. That is what God desires of us. Isaiah 55, verse 6. Seek Yahweh while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Psalm 14, 2. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who has insight. Anyone who seeks after God. Yet the, the way that it's worded here in the Greek, the Apostle Paul casts extreme doubt upon whether anybody actually is willing to, to seek, is the idea of, of searching and groping in the darkness, and whether anyone will actually find God. They know He exists. That, that's, what, that's what has prompted this entire conversation, right? The, the, the Athenians have an altar there saying to an unknown God. Paul's saying, you're searching and seeking for him, but you haven't found him. Then Paul makes one last point concerning humanity. He says, for in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we, are also, we also are his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, I'm sorry, that's uh, the next portion, but... Paul makes this point and he he cites some of their own poets, not because their own poets are inspired, but because in the the darkness and in their groping around, they've made little statements that are true. They're moving in the right direction, but they don't have the right distance. The Apostle Paul emphasizes that, that we are all God's offspring. Some translations say children. But every person is connected to God because we are created in His image. Uh, and we uh, are like Him. And Paul, again, quotes two Greek poets to, to, to build ground and, and common ground with the people that he is addressing. So look, you even recognize this, but let me tell you more. Let me tell you the truth. And the Apostle Paul understands that you can only uh, rightly move in the direction of God if, if you understand who God is and who you are. If you don't understand both of those things, you're going to be going in the wrong direction. Right? There are plenty of ways to misunderstand God and to misunderstand who we are as human beings. Uh, and both of those will establish a vector for your life. So take, for instance, the the Epicurean philosophers that Paul is addressing in this uh, situation. They were teaching and proclaiming that the pursuit of pleasure is the purpose of life. If you believe that's the trajectory and the purpose and that's your vector, and you are living that out and you're teaching that, that sets yourself and the next generation in a particular direction, in a vector. And part of that... That vector, that pursuit of pleasure is all about you and it doesn't go far enough because God's not in the picture, right? There is no afterlife. It's all about the here and now, right? Uh, I have somebody who uh, was trying to show me how to golf and one of the points that he gave me, he says, I've never seen a short putt go in. Never seen a short putt go in. If you hit it too soft, you have no chance. But sometimes, even if you hit it hard, that there's going to be a chance that it goes in. If you live only for the here and now, you're going to fail in eternity. But, but if you live for eternity, then, then we, can, we, we can start to go somewhere. But even then, it has to be in the right direction. 
So the Epicurean philosophers were teaching and proclaiming the pursuit of pleasure is the purpose of life. The Stoic philosophers were teaching and living out that the purpose of life is to exercise self-control in every situation. Kind of uh, the exact opposite. Rather than pursue your own heart's desires, it's like, no, exercise self-control. Don't show either pleasure or pain. Always be the same. The, the idea of the, the Stoic philosophers, they got their name from the idea of the, the, the word for a column, a stoa. That's what they were striving to be like. Again, that sets you on a trajectory. What you believe about humanity. If, if you believe and teach the next generation that, that there is no God, that we have evolved from bacteria, that sets them on a trajectory as well. That, that gives them a vector for life. One that's in the wrong direction and all too short. Who are we as human beings? What is a woman? Right, there's there's some, some controversial questions of our time, right? Uh, and they're controversial here and now, but they've always been important. Because how you answer that question is going to be your launching pad for life. Where are you going? And the Apostle Paul is saying, I need to correct this. I need to address this with these philosophers. I need to correct their understanding of who God is and who we are as human beings. Because if I don't begin there, we're already off course. So after correcting the Athenian understanding about God and humanity... The Apostle Paul presses to apply those truths to the lives of these philosophers because he's now going to call for them to respond. Verses 29 to 31. Verse 29 is going to begin of how, how should the world respond to God? Well, number one, we need to change how we think about God. As being then the offspring of God, we ought not to suppose that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the craft and thought of man. And so Paul has, has worked to, to build this connection between who God is and who we are as human beings, and we are his offspring, right? And what do your kids, who do your kids look like? They look like you, right? Sometimes that's really, really obvious. And so the Apostle Paul is kind of saying, look at yourselves, Right? If you are God's offspring, why are you making these idols of gold and silver and idols? If you, your own poets, are saying that you are God's offspring, why are you treating God as if he's some fabrication of your own mind? That you can carve him and worship him. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. They need to change how they think about God. And if... Because we are God's offspring, because we are connected to him, we are obligated to think rightly about him. And really, as he is outlining this in verse 29, that we ought not to suppose that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the craft and thought of man. Paul is is declaring any and all idolatry to be sinful. You're going to worship God in the wrong way. That's not pleasing to him. 
an image carved out of gold or silver or stone. Sometimes we, we say, well, I'm not doing that. But, but the, the heart of idolatry in the scriptures uh, is not just focused upon externals. Ezekiel 14.3, God condemns the men of Jerusalem. He says, these men have set up their idols in their hearts. Idolatry goes far, far deeper than just a hammer and chisel upon stone. Or gold and silver being refined and, and crafted. One biblical counselor, Nicholas Ellen, defines idolatry in this way. He says, idols are the aspects of creation that we turn to above God. And this can be any person, place, product, perspective, position, platform, or power that we depend on other than God as a source of satisfaction and as a solution to our problems. We tend to think of ourselves not as idolaters, but what do you do when you're stressed? What what do you turn to? That your heart reveals what you look to as a source of satisfaction and a solution to life's problems. Why do you have that panic attack when you can't find your smartphone? Just hypothetically speaking. Right? Because so often we turn to entertainment. We turn to distraction. We turn to anything else other than the living God who's given us life and breath and everything else. And Paul wants them to see that. They need to change how they think about God. But then secondly, verses 30 and 31, Paul is going to to say that God is commanding them to look to him in repentance and faith. These verses might be familiar. One of these verses we've memorized in our gospel presentation as we talk about evangelism in our growth groups. So I'm hoping that verse 30 sounds familiar to one or two of you. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now commanding men that everyone everywhere should repent. That, that is what he is proclaiming. That is what he is commanding. And again, notice those exact numbers, right? Everyone, everywhere must repent and believe. Repentance and faith are inseparable. They are two sides of the same coin. And to, to repent is to, to make a U-turn. And you only make a U-turn when you realize that you're going in the wrong direction. But there are also various reasons to make U-turns as as we drive in cars, right? Sometimes we make a U-turn because we forgot something, either at the house or at the office. And we we turn around, but then we are also going to turn back around again once we have what we were, what we forgot. So that's two U-turns and I'm going to end up going the exact same direction that I began. Other times we make a a U-turn to avoid traffic. Maybe there's an an accident in front of us. We realize, nope, Eagle Road at this time of day is not going to be good. In such cases, we we take a different path. We we make a a U-turn, but we just take a a different route to our desired destination. That's really not a, a full turn. 
Another reason we might make a U-turn, because maybe there's, there's danger ahead of us. So say if we were driving through Texas and saw a tornado funnel forming ahead of you, you say, well, that's why I didn't move to Texas. That's why I came to Idaho. But, but say you, you do see that danger ahead of you, it would be wise to turn around. But then when the, when the danger passes, what are you going to do? Probably continue down that same road. There's one, one other reason to, to make a U-turn. And I would say that's ultimately because you realize that you are pursuing the wrong destination. And really, that is what God wants us to see and understand. He doesn't want us to be redirected and rerouted because of some temporary uh, inconvenience of traffic. He doesn't want us to be uh, rerouted because we perceive some danger. And I'm going to look to, to Christ as spiritual fire insurance. He wants us to see and understand that the direction that we are moving in life needs to be Him and needs to be focused upon Him rather than upon ourselves. And the Apostle Paul really is going to, he's going to point to danger, but ultimately he's calling for the Athenians, these philosophers, to change their direction because they are, have been pursuing the wrong destination. And verse 31 is where the Apostle Paul is going to to build this in and he's going to assure them of something and he's going to he's going to work from historical fact to theological fact. And let's look at what he what he does. Verse thirty one, he's going to in essence say that there is judgment coming. Because he has fixed a day. The judgment is coming and it is sure. It is a fixed time. Judgment is coming and it is also near. Because he has fixed a day in which he will, in the Greek, the idea is that he is about to, that it is close, it is imminent. We don't know when it's going to happen, but it is going to happen. He's going to judge the world. This is a global judgment. The idea is it is, it is all of the inhabited earth. This judgment that is coming is also righteous. This is the manner of judgment. And, and we often say that we want righteous judgment. But when we say that, we usually mean we want righteous judgment for others. I want grace. I want mercy. I want that person to be judged with righteousness. But do you really want perfect judgment of your own sins? Of your own life? This is the judgment that the Apostle Paul is is pointing to it is sure it is near it is global it is righteous and it has an appointed judge because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he determined having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead the apostle paul points to the resurrection and he says, here is your judge. This is the one you are going to have to stand before. And God has given proof and announced to everybody that Jesus is the judge in the resurrection. 
This is the one that we are going to have to stand before. God says every single person's vector goes to Jesus in one way or another. Some of us will go and we will stand before Jesus and he will be our savior. Because we have looked to him in faith. We have not trusted in ourselves, in our own wisdom, in our own works. We've acknowledged our sinfulness, our rebellion against God, and we've cried out asking for mercy. And God promises mercy to all who look to Jesus in that way. That, that vector is going to arrive at Jesus and we're going to find mercy. Others who harden their hearts towards Christ who refuse to look to him in faith and continue to trust in themselves, that their, their vector is, is still going directly towards Jesus. It's like they're on a, a gigantic treadmill of life, and they are trying frantically to run away from him, but the treadmill still moving at full speed towards him. They can run all that they want as hard as they can, but one day they will still arrive at exactly that same destination. They will still ultimately stand before Christ. And if he's not your savior, then he's going to be your judge. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. And he's saying it with boldness to these philosophers, these men who are convinced of their own intellectual superiority. How does the Apostle Paul do that? He does that because he knows that it's true. And what does he work from? Historical fact to theological fact. Historical reality to theological reality. Christ is risen, so we will one day stand before him, either as Savior or as judge. Jesus of Nazareth, descendant of David, he is the Messiah of Israel. He is the Son of God. He is the appointed judge. He lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death. He rose again on the third day. And one day we will all stand before him. If you look at verses 32 to 34, we see that the response to Paul's corrections about God and humanity and how they need to respond. Now, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead... Some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. And in this way, Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, and among them, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So what we see is that there were many who, who scoff, but there were some who believe. And understand, this is faithful evangelism. Faithful evangelism is proclaiming the good news about Jesus and calling others to believe in him and then leaving the results to God. Paul did this boldly and trusting himself to God and trusting the results to God. That's faithful evangelism. And faithful evangelism is, in essence, proclaiming the vector that all people are on. Hey, you're heading towards Jesus. One day you're going to stand before him. Do you want to see him as savior or as judge? I love what one theologian, Owen Strayan, said about this. Speaking about human life, he says, Every existence is spiritual, teleological, and eschatological. And this means everyone is headed somewhere. 
I know those are, those are big words, but everybody is, every existence is spiritual, right? You are an eternal soul. You will spend eternity somewhere. Secondly, all existence is teleological, means it is heading in a particular direction. Teleology is the, the, uh, the purpose of life. It is also eschatological, meaning there, there is a, an end, there is a, a judgment that comes. Every human existence is spiritual, teleological, and eschatological, working towards something. And when we understand and believe that, that we will have courage. But when we understand that we are going in a particular direction, and when we look at others, that they are moving in a direction, and they need to know what direction that is. That we can have courage because of the resurrection of our Savior. Close with the story of John Wilfinger. He was a missionary in, in Borneo. And in 1942, the Japanese invaded that country. Uh, and uh, in order to escape, uh, John Wilfinger and Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Richard Lenham, who were missionaries with the, the Christian uh, Alliance, uh, Christian and Missionary Alliance, the CMA, CNMA, they fled into the jungle to, to try to live with Christians of the, the Murat tribe. And Wilfinger was a bachelor linguist, and he was anticipating an upcoming furlough where he would see his fiancée. And the Lenhams were were working on a a translation of the Bible in the Murat language. And in July, the three missionaries learned that a group of Europeans had been captured by the Japanese. And in response, they moved to another village in the northern part of Borneo. And they learned that that three other uh, Christian and Missionary Alliance missionaries serving in eastern Borneo have been imprisoned by the Japanese. And so John Wolfinger and the Lenhams assumed that the Japanese would eventually find them. In September of that year, a messenger brought a list of persons that the Japanese were, were searching for in the, the country, and their names were on that list. And the messenger warned them uh, that uh, anybody who was caught harboring these fugitives would be severely punished. And the Christians in that village pleaded with the missionaries they say stay don't run we will be able to 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 hide you so that you will not be found but the missionaries discussed what they should do and they finally came to a decision they told their host he says if you're going to, to hide us you're going to have to lie to the japanese and we would rather surrender than cause you to be disobedient to god and Wilfinger explained in a, a whosoever receives this letter. He says, we feel that we could not have successfully hidden, but at the risk of involving those Murats who have been so kind to us and are desiring of hiding us. Therefore, we have decided to go to the enemy, trusting God as to the ultimate results. And he attached a list of names and addresses to his letter, asking that whoever would receive it would, would forward it on to his family. And then the missionaries decided to, to part ways. And, and Will Finger uh, said he was going to go through some of the, the previous villages where he had been and try to encourage the Christians there. And the Lenhams went in a different direction. Will Finger completed his missionary tour and then he, he turned himself into the Japanese. 
And in December of that year, he was executed. After the war, his Bible was discovered, and inside the cover of his Bible, he had inscribed a poem. There's no mere man is the Christ I know, but far greater than all below. Day by day, his love enfolds me. Day by day, his power upholds me. All that God could ever be, that man of Nazareth is to me. No mere man can my strength sustain and drive away all my pain. Holding me close in his embrace, when death and I stand face to face, then all that God could ever be, the unseen Christ, will be to me. And underneath that poem were written the the words, Hallelujah, this is true. What is it that gave him courage? A confidence in the resurrection of Jesus and a confidence in his own resurrection. He's willing to go to death, willing to, to, to stand before the Japanese, willing to stand before anybody because he knows where he is going. Do you have that kind of assurance? All who look to Jesus in faith have that kind of assurance because Jesus was raised from the dead. And if we believe in him, we are united with him and we will one day be raised with him in glory. If you want that kind of assurance, I would urge you today, look to Jesus in faith. Don't don't put that off for later. Don't say, I'll do that tomorrow. Scripture says today is the day of salvation. Look to Christ in faith. And if you've already placed your faith in Christ, then you can rejoice. That's what we're here to do. Amen? To sing to our resurrected Savior. To echo back to Him all He has done and all that He is. We can rejoice in His resurrection today and every day. Let's pray and we'll, we'll sing one last song.